A quick note about the audio featured in today's episode. In the heat of conversation, our recording device malfunctioned. We did our best to restore this episode's audio to its original quality, though it's not the same. This week, we invite you to listen a little closer and appreciate your patience. You are listening to Smokin' Theologians, a long-form conversation with hosts Alex Gonzalez and Preston Graham. Alex is a filmmaker, digital creative, and our designated layman. Preston is a church planter and pastor, author, and our theologian. Today's guest is Ben Sheldon, church planter in New London, Connecticut, and former Marine captain. This is episode five. Yeah. Yeah. I, know, yeah. I, wrote, I wrote this down because you know, these are the moments where you really have to get the line right and yeah, I stumble. But I'm serious. This. Today we're talking about the military, God, war. The military, God, war. Preston, you want to start? Is that, is, that, is that interesting to you? It's so interesting to me. I don't, it's, it's, it covers a lot. The military, God, Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to see where this conversation takes us, yeah. and to see yeah, your yeah. guys' experience and perspective. Well, I must confess, my uh, experience with this topic is not existential, if you mean by that, that I've had any engagement with war as a person. I, you know, in some ways, I'm wondering, what does an ex-hippie have to say about war? You know, I mean, um, I just didn't grow up. I was in the Vietnam era, and... I just didn't grow up with that being uh, kind of a virtuous idea, generally. I didn't think a lot about it, actually, when I was young. But um, it didn't become real to me until my two sons, which, again, how two of my sons became combat soldiers, uh, I don't know, but they did. And um, I think largely influenced by their grandparents, who were both very patriotic ex soldiers. Um, my father flew, was a fighter pilot. My yeah, grandfather was all sorts of things. I think he was, he served in two branches and all that. So, so I kind of watched it from afar as my point. And, um, and, you know, but as a father, you know, when they started talking about this, I know, you know, for them at least, in that generation, um, they were, I think they were very impacted by 9 11. You know, especially up here in Connecticut, we had friends that were right there on the scene. There was a lot of crisis that was going on in life in church. Are they going to get on the train? Are they going to get back? Da, 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 da. You know, so the kids felt that in junior high levels. And, you know, and I remember when I pushed my son once when he's really, I'll say, I want to hear why you're really doing this. You know, it's just really because there are a lot of ways to make some money, a lot of ways to get trades. What are you doing, sir? You know, he said, I, you know, I really believe in evil, man. I, I think there's bad stuff, and it's in my nature to protect people, and I don't want to do that. So at some raw level, that was what sort of, you know, got me involved. But that's, that's my involvement, honestly, and it's not much. You know, we're lucky to have with us Ben. Um, ben is a, a combat, was an ex-combat soldier, and I'm going to let him introduce himself, but he's also a... Pastor theologian, church planning here in New London, particularly aiming, you know, particularly targeting actually the military community up there, right? So, hey, anyway, right. you tell us about yourself a little bit. Good yes. to see you. Hey, man. Yeah, my, my, like Preston said, my name's Ben, and 
glad you shared that story about your your own family, Preston, because 9-11 really influenced me. I was a sophomore in high school at the time. Grew up in South Jersey, so a little bit less connected to New York City than maybe up here in Connecticut. Yeah, that's But that definitely put on my horizon uh, the possibility and the desire of, of joining the military. Uh, fast forward a few years, I graduated college. My wife and I got married, and uh, we were living and working out in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I became really enamored with joining the Marine Corps Officer Corps. And I went through the process of applying, became a Marine Corps officer, went through the training pipeline, became an infantry officer. And uh, during that time was deployed to Afghanistan, did a combat deployment with my Marine Battalion. And it was the, it was the best of times and the worst of times. It was uh, a lot of great experiences, really shaped who I am as a person. Um, and I was a Christian throughout. So I, I had a lot of really, uh, a lot of opportunity to reflect on the intersection of my beliefs with what I was doing, particularly as an infantry officer. And yeah, I, I served just under eight years, made a lot of really great friendships, had some uh, challenging experiences, but ones that. I'm thankful for it. But also, you know, there's a lot of folks in the military, uh, the way I say it when it comes to combat experience is, there's a lot of people who had more combat experience than me, and I had more than some. So I can't speak for all vets uh, when, I, when I talk about my experiences, but uh, I'm excited to have this conversation and interact on on this topic. Well, listen, I don't want to leave your experience yet, if I could. Again, I think we're both really eager to hear you kind of share your experience a little bit. Um, you said the best of times are the worst of times. What do you mean by that? Best of times are, you know, some of the intangibles about the military experience, particularly in the combat arms and the infantry, amongst those jobs in the military that are dedicated to either supporting or being involved in combat. There's, there's really tight... There's a really tight fraternity amongst each other. Yeah. And, you know, you take it for granted when you're experiencing it. Uh, but there really is a depth of human connection as you're looking out for your body, as you're trying to do the best, be as technically and tactically proficient as you can for the sake of the guys you're with. And, you know, as an officer, I had a little bit of a bigger view of what was going on strategically. But when you're in it, care about what's happening for you and your guys. Yeah. And the band of brothers right. is a true absolute cliche. Yes. It's a very true cliche. Uh, you, you know, small caveat, but you mentioned your father. Did, did he when did what period of time did he fly in? He was right right after the Korean War, right before right tail end of the Korean War before the you know because that band of brothers, the, the both the HBO documentary and then the book by Stephen Ambrose um, I think it became so popular because it gave such a uh, an accurate picture of the human uh, the human realities of serving with one another in a combat situation. Everything's heightened yeah. in combat. Yeah. There's there's consequences immediately to actions, right. and so a, a lot of pretenses stripped away, especially in combat yeah. situation. Yeah. And your, your character shines through for better or for worse, mm-hmm. and 
positives of a, a culture that wants to, to be a reliable person with integrity for, for your guys. Yeah. It's interesting during your era, um, I'm sure millennial, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, the, it was all going around the next greatest generation because it felt like there was a lot of similarities between your generation and my grandfather's generation. Both dealt with the catastrophic reality that we are not, we are not, you know, really as safe as we think. Just being the side of home, so to speak. And so I think there's a reality to that. It's interesting you said the Band of Brothers, both my two sons, when that came out, um, they just ate it up. We ate it yeah. up. And I can't remember if it was before they were, I think it was before they was, you know, that that they just really caught that vision. And I think you're probably yeah. right. A lot of folks really, ironically, a kind of secondary, whatever you want to call it, motives. I think people were really starving for meaningful loyalty yes. and companionship. And, and there's a sense in which you, you see a movie like that and you want to be part of that sort of sacred, unique fraternity. And I, I think to this day, I know that's what they would say is their greatest, you know, sort of yeah. thing about all this. But yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Well, we, what do you think? I mean, any, any other experience with it before we turn into some maybe more becoming thinking theologians here? Yeah, I, I mean, I personally don't have any like personal experience with combat. I mean, what, what, what do you think? What do you think? The, the, you know, just think about your friends. Sure. People that you hang out with. I mean, what do you think their experience with military is? What what comes to their mind when they think of military? Is it, is it a good thing? Is it is it a bad thing? My friends with, with both sides of the, of the spectrum. My yeah. friends who are who are, who are and, and and I'm friends with them because of that band of brothers of that kind of that's the kind of camaraderie we have. And and there was always like talk among me after a couple of late nights. It's like there's almost like this. I don't want to say hunger for violence, but there's this hunger. Um, in that circle too, like we want something to fight, we want something to protect, and it's very um, visceral. Yeah, I have other friends who just you want to you want to be bound together with something meaningful, yeah. with passion together. Yeah. yeah, I think there's really something about that, and, and you know that could happen in I think that happens in sports. That could happen. Even that's artificial. I was a sports guy, but exactly. I don't think you compare to somebody who really knows that my actions rely on your actions, or I'm dead. <laughs> Not just winning the game, but you're right. But there is civilized. Yes, trying to. I guess it, I, I said that because like it paints a picture that I think in our, if we're honest with our human nature, yeah. um, we yearn for that. Um, like I used to wrestle. I I, I love play fight. I, I, there's nothing more that I want to do than spar. I I love really? like and that I when I spar when I spar with somebody, I really feel like I connect with them. Uh, I don't have a, I don't want to hurt them. I don't want to right. find them. And I, yeah, so that's, I guess, my experience. But I'm, I guess, yeah, I'm more, I defer, I want to hear Yeah, well, it's, I think you're hitting on something else because, you know, going back to Band of Brothers, World War II, and then to some effect, the Korean War and the Vietnam War generation was a draft. Yeah, oh, that's another good Guys were coming in, you know, there were people enlisting of their own free will and, and service that they wanted to to avoid just being right. caught in the draft. But the difference with this generation, the millennial, and to some extent the uh, Gen Z generation, is that it's an all volunteer military. 
So you got to ask yourself, what is driving people to enlist of their own volition in an all-volunteer military where there, there's not really a draft? And I think, it, you know, sure, there's idealistic reasons, like I, I want to defend America or I want to uh, play evil, but there's also something, there, there's a draw to those virtues of loyalty, of honor, of proving oneself, particularly if you're a young man growing up 18, 19, you say, I want to prove what I'm capable of. And it's a, it's a rite of passage in, in a sense. Um, so yeah, all those things are... I, I think to be, yeah, to be a cynic a little bit. Yeah. And you correct me if you don't think this is a true thing, but I, I mean, I think we have to concede that there is an idealism that motivates people, whether it's the idealism of relationships or idealism of the fight against good and evil, yes. you know, all that. Yep. But would you say that, that there's also the motivation, it's just self-interest. I, I want to learn a trade. I, I need to get off the streets. I need to get myself better, and this will help discipline me. And, I mean, is that, and, and does that create a different kind of soldier necessarily, or what do you think? Those things absolutely exist. Um, and, and the military, especially because it is an all-volunteer military, employs all the powers that they have to enlist and, and incentivize uh, folks to enlist and join. Um, but that very quickly, I would say in my experience, that very quickly passes into something else once you're in. Okay. Once you sign, you're under contract, and you have to embrace the suck, as it were, of going through difficult situations and, and a relentless training pipeline to even get you to place of deploying to, to engage in, in whatever you've been trained to do, uh, all those incentives sort of take second place. Do you think that kind of, um, do you think that's true across the platforms of the military? You know, do you, would you find well, that in uh, anyone that wears a uniform, you think? Because well, you have done all that yourself. Yeah, speaking as a Marine, which uh, the Marines have mastered the art of uh, propaganda and, and building ourselves up to the point where everyone believes. And we're coming up on, on the Marine Corps birthday. The Marine Corps birthday is a, is a, is a massive annual event in which the narrative is it, just driven home of Semper Fidelis, proud to be a Marine. So, I, I, you know, looking at the other services, elements of each of those services have a similar uh, esprit de corps, uh, a, a sense of, of, of belonging, a sense of purpose. But yes, if you if you look at the Air Force, for example, and you say the Air Force is going to teach me technology and AV skills, I do four years and I have the ability to take this into the civilian world or whatever it is. Yes, that, that exists. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a, it's a bad thing. It gives opportunity to a lot of people who come from sectors of our society who have very limited means of stepping up the ladder. And the military does offer uh, that type of, you want to improve your situation, you want to gain experiences and training, here's, here's an avenue for you. Yeah. What? So we're talking about, I guess, what different types of motivations to lead us to that point where we boots are on the ground. Maybe this is sidetracked, but do you have experience with the Afghan soldiers who want to motivate them? Oh, yeah. Yes. Is it, do they also have programs? Are they only treats? That's a good question. Relevant, very relevant question. Um, particularly with what's been going on in Afghanistan in the last couple of months. But um, this could be a long, coming off press now, this is too long, but, you know, the Afghan people have been 
the people. For I, I don't think it would be wrong to say for, for a thousand years. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, yeah. every generation, at least in recent memory, has been engaged in some type of existential threat. But as a result, they're very, uh, they're very patriarchal, but also very uh, a warrior people. Uh, so the Afghan soldiers I interacted with, they loved their country. They wanted to see um, the Taliban defeated. Obviously, we were working with those that were fighting the Taliban, which is the, the folks that enabled 9-11. Yeah, and they're true Afghans. Right. Um, they learned trades. Uh, the same infrastructure doesn't exist as it does in America. So they may learn a trade. But if there's not all the supporting establishment, it doesn't matter if they've learned how to fly a drone. Without working directly with U.S. forces, they may or may not be able to employ those skills outside the, the combat arena. Um, but yes, they learn skills, uh, and it's a lot of a lot of war-based skill. But you found yourself in your humanity and as a warrior. You found yourself with a camaraderie with those guys? To the extent we, that we served with them, um, in my particular situation, we served with a more elite Afghan unit. We would do helicopter missions into villages, and we would try to clear the village of all improvised explosive device, making material, try to take their the Taliban heroin operations offline, monetary source. And, you know, they would stockpile rockets and weapons to try to affect what militia forces were doing there. Um, and the Afghans we worked with, they were highly proficient, very honorable. Um, now, I say all this with a major caveat that throughout the war there was a big threat, an insider threat of Afghan soldiers turning their weapons on Americans and other Afghans under the guise of being a friend of the that, that, that was an ongoing threat throughout uh, the war in Afghanistan. Um, but by and large, the guys I served with, yes, I, I, uh, I wish them well. Some of them have been repatriated in the United States recently as they fled Afghanistan. Um, I think that was the honorable thing to do to bring them here and protect them because they work with us. No, I think that that recommends a moral thing. And maybe our country's ever done it. Praise the Lord. You know what's happening over there. Hearing from my son some of their stories about it as well. It really is unbelievable. What I hear about. And this idea that you didn't want to come to America. Well, they didn't want to come because you wouldn't bring my, my father and my mother exactly. who would get their drinks cut off. Right. Well, I left. Right. And so it's really sad. We probably ought to turn to the, the the big question here. I mean, is all this moral? You know, is it really moral? As long as war has existed, there has been the question, is war moral? And if it is, under what conditions? And, um, I should say, by the way, before we get started, that we all probably recognize that when we're talking about the military, you know, that's that's a branch, if you will. I mean, bad words in the branch of the military, but that's a, one aspect of this question of war. But there's also, you know, the, the police. We, of course, this is a pretty relevant conversation right now with defunding. And, you know, you know I, I, my personal feeling is I think there's probably good reason to rethink how we use our police. I do think that, uh, you know, even policemen, I always say, I don't want to be a social worker. 
and that's not where the trend to be. And how how can we better organize, you know, things in a way that police are police and they're warriors, really? Yes. And then we have others. So I'm not here getting into that. I just want to know that I'm not trying to get into that debate per se, other than to say, is it legitimate? Is war legitimate? Whether it's war abroad or war at home, you know, in some ways, is it legitimate? And um, so all this conversation, and I think to do this, if I may, I put a couple of notes here, because I want to make sure I get it right. But, I mean, if we're going to talk about morality of war, it's hard not to talk about Sam Dustin, right. as you know. And you may know, you know about that, right? Somewhat. Um, but he, you know, he really is, I mean, he started the conversation, at least from a church history point of view, uh, post-Christ, in a way that is to, to continually... Uh, you know, sort of define the way we start talking about this issue of morality. And of course, he was, you know, you know, he came around when, um, you know, how can, you know, he, he lived in the time when Rome was sort of in its downfall, and and um, in the early church, he, he contributed to this whole thing, and in that context of, of speaking into Rome and, and the context of his situation, he he developed these these sort of this concept we call just war. And with the just war, it was conceived to ensure that war was morally right, and yet also, what would be then, if it is morally right, what are the conditions for that? So, is what is when is it right to go to war, question. But also, once we go to war, he dealt with the issue of, you know, what then would be the right conduct in war? How do we do war? And so if I could just tee it up, and I want to hear your reaction to this. But So the first one, of course, is the issue of the right to go to war. And it really concerns the morality of going to war. And the opponents, you know, even in his day, you know, you could divide them from the pacifist position. You know, they, you know, either you're inclined to be stricter pacifists in this, this discussion, and which it proposes there has never been, nor can there ever be a justifiable cause to war, basically. That's particularly popular within the Christian circles and the Anabaptist sort of tradition. And um, they, they cite passages like, you know, we should not kill our enemy, we should love our enemy, turn the other cheek, things of that nature. And so that's the passive situation. And then the other side is those who are inclined more uh, to a permissive nationalistic standard, what I call nationalism, where it proposes that war only needs to serve a nation's interest to be justifiable. So we have these two, I think, strict positions, passivism and let's call it nationalism, whether it's Christian nationalism, Russian nationalism, whatever, but you do it. And to be clear, just war theory is very careful to avoid both of those. It really is intended to clarify neither. You know, the right moral question is not passivism. Nor is it nationalism, which is to make war kind of imperialistic. Um, he asserted, and I'll, you know, here just quote what I wrote down here. He asserted that peacefulness in the face of a grave wrong that could only be stopped by violence would be a sin. So think about that. The prophets used to say, you know, they shout peace, peace when there is no peace. You know, it's it's easy to say peace until you're being oppressed. And I say that's true both in this country and it's true uh, between countries. That peace, peace, when there is no peace, 
seems to be immoral that we would allow for sin and oppression unstopped. So that's his argument. You know, he says um, basically that that you know defense of oneself or others could be a necessity. That's the key word, especially when authorized. And here's another key thing he said by legitimate authority. Which, by the way, he did not believe was the church. He believed only the only authority to wage war is the institution that God established in Romans 13. He established it with Cain. He established it with David. He established it all through redemptive history. There's been a tradition of um, of recognizing that God instituted the civil sphere um, in order to protect uh, against oppression and against, you know, unrighteous killing and unrighteous, you know, sort of stuff. And so, so with that in mind, um, there we have it. Um, the second part is the conduct war. So yes, is, war is righteous insofar as it's just, and it's just insofar as it is for the sake of either self-defense or the defense of the innocent. And the context, I'll just read them, and then I'm going to get you to commentary on this, um, just to get it out. So what's the right conduct? Um, one, the damage inflicted by the aggressor on the nation or community of nations must be lasting, grave, and certain. So it's a very serious issue. Some language. Yeah, it is some language. Two, all other means of putting an end to it must have been shown to be impractical or ineffective. In other words, we exhausted all other opportunities to stop the aggression. Three, there must be a serious prospect of success. I find that to be very interesting. Um, that you could cause more damage going to war justifiably and yet going to war without the means to actually make it. Because then you'd have more damage. If you, if you don't solve the problem by going to war, you just created two messy situations. And then finally, at least by my bullets, the use of arms must not produce evils and disorders graver than the evil to be eliminated. You know, you think about the power of modern means of destruction and how that weighs heavily on that question of this, what, how far is too far? Um, and what do you think about those? What do you think of just war theory as a soldier, but also as a theologian pastor? Do you think it's right? I think just war theory is the ideal for which any conflict that uh, we would engage in would subject itself to those principles of just war. Um, what's interesting, person, as you're going through those is um, just keeping the war in Afghanistan in the forefront. Uh, when we started it, I think you could make a really good argument that it was within the bounds of just war theory. We were attacked, 9 11, Afghanistan was harboring Al Qaeda. Um, it made a lot of sense to enter and eliminate that threat. And we had a very real reality here with the threat. We had a very real incident that affected us, it affected uh, the, the order of, of the world that we've come to for better or for worse, live under, which is that uh, America ensures the current status of globalism. You know, whether that be shipping, whether that be uh, the economic 
system, all that was threatened by 9-11. So there, there was just reason to go to war. As the, as the war progressed over the decades, really, that morphed. And there, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of back and forth on, okay, are, are we now rebuilding a nation in the image of a democracy uh, that was still justified and say that's a good thing for the Afghan people. I think there were many good things like women were able to go to school, uh, people were able to travel freely, people were able to experience at least to some degree the freedom of religion and commerce. Um, but as we've pulled out, we realized that the underpinnings for some of that nation building it was inevitable that it would collapse once, once we pulled the military support for that project. Uh, and, and, it, and it calls into question some of the just principles that went into seeking that. So, to what degree is it just on behalf of the people of Afghanistan for us to say yes? I really want to know what it, they, you know, to take a step back because yeah. we're, uh, we're hearing this from the American perspective mm-hmm. but I'm sure that the Taliban the Taliban I've read some articles where they call us the great state oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that, we, that we represent like the biggest existential threat and, and right. so I'm wondering yeah they have their own just war theory. <laughs> yeah, they have their own just war theory. Yeah. I think everyone in the way goes to war. Based on how they treat some of their side to go down the ground. Yeah, that's a good question, Alex. Um, you know, I guess ideally, uh, if we had a member of the Taliban here, they'd say that they um, are engaging war on the principles of the Quran and of their Islamic faith. Um, Pragmatically, how that worked out, like Preston just alluded to, they kind of terrorized their own people as well. If you didn't bow to their particular interpretation of Islam, uh, that's probably why it's good to have it in the state rather than the church. Well, I was about to say, it can't be re emphasized enough for all of us to remember that it is not the Judeo Christian, as some have confused it, that we. But there was ever time, even in the Old Testament, when we held to the idea that the church, that that we should expand our faith through war. Uh, that's not a Christian position. Um, we can't really forget that in Old Testament there was a unique situation, we call it theonomy, but where, there, where Israel was at once both a state and a church. And I, I think we have to read the Old Testament understanding that, that there were clearly geopolitical aspects to, to the nation-state of Israel that no longer existed once Christ came. He made that very clear. He, you know, when, 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 when the, many of the Messianic Jews thought he was coming to overturn Rome, and every time he was going to be a warrior king, he was going to be a great warrior king, he made it clear, no, the prophets said, I would be a servant, a suffering servant king. And he would... When, when they would take, you know, you remember Peter, it's interesting, he was packing, right? But here's Peter in some situation, he's got a sword. And he pulls the sword out, and, and what does Jesus say? Put that sword up. You know, this is not the power of the kingdom of God that I come bring. And when they wanted, when he went up to Jerusalem, and everybody's singing Hosea, it's pretty clear that everybody was expecting 
He's finally come. He's yeah. going to overthrow Rome. Honey comes on and, and what does he do? What does he do? First of all, he says, the first time that he went up there, he says, no, do not promote it. No, do this. This is it's not my time. And he did not want to get co-opted with, with that messianism, that, that, mess, mess, that political mess, messianism. And, and even in the Old Testament, you can't forget that the way that this all happened was when Cain, he first gave the, 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 the decree to, the cultural mandate to Adam and Eve were, were to be, in some ways, an aspect of what they were doing was to protect and guard Eve. And there was definitely a warrior element to, to the calling there in Eve. But then after the fall, the church and state, the theonomy that you had, if you will, in Eden, was, was divided into two very different lines. And you see those in Genesis. There's you know ten lines here and ten lines here. One goes after Seth, one goes after Cain. And Cain, you remember, you know, he had this problem. He got excommunicated from the church at a time when the church and the state were still undivided and eaten. And he goes to God and he says, let me finish this, because he goes to God and he says, God, I'm screwed. You know, I'm now no longer under the protection of, of Eden's, you know, polity uh, and military. And so in that, God puts a mark on Cain's head and he says, I will not know. And he establishes the first use of the word city, for the city of man, where you, I have instituted the state that will protect you from all those that you're afraid of that will come and destroy you. And so that you cannot forget, right? What we're talking about here with the, with the Taliban is they still live within this theocracy where for them, church and state are confused. And therefore they think, you know, we don't believe in a holy war. If you mean by holy, that this is a war to expand Christianity, Christians don't believe in that. Even if that's been confused in church history, admittedly. We don't, at least my understanding of the scripture doesn't hold to that view. And therefore, that's where the big problem is, is you have the Taliban trying to wield the sword to propagate their Islam. Right. And we can't justify that for Christianity. No. And, and you know, on that note, Preston, I want to make two points. The first one is like, during the war in Iraq, which is a separate discussion about how just war period applied to that particular war, but the U.S. went to great lengths to ensure that, and this did not happen perfectly, but to ensure mosques were protected, that mosques were not invaded, to avoid the image of this is a holy war of us coming after the religion. Now, that didn't always happen perfectly, and it's collateral and damaging war, but just just to distinguish between that church and state. For the sake of terms, everybody that's listening, if I use holy war, I'm referencing what is, I believe, an unholy reality, right. which is a war for the sake of expanding the special grace, you know, uh, religious side of this whole thing. Um, that's why we distinguish holy war from just war. There is no war that's holy if it is for the sake or if it's under the institution of the church. Right. There is, we believe, Christianly, if Augustine is right, we need to look at that. I mean, well, I've already shown where that's right from Scripture, this holy war idea. It's meant to be remedial. Holy war is always remedial, not imperial. And and it's, so it really does still, though, raise questions about, I mean, if, we're, if we look at the war, some might want to argue that it was for the protection of oil. 
you know, and energy for our country, we would say that's not just war, right? right? Is that right? I agree with that. Yeah. You know, I also want to make a point, as we're talking about the, the redemptive storyline of the Bible, um, you know, the prophets used to prophesy about the latter days, which we now understand as, as the already and not yet of Christ having yeah. instituted his kingdom here, that they would prophesy that the swords would be turned into plowshares, spears, and the pruning hooks. That's awesome. Yeah. We believe, as Christians, we believe it's, we've realized that already Christ has come, but there's still a not yet element to it. Yeah. That there is still sin, oppression, evil in the world. In that it is good to restrain that and suppress it through the use of just law. But we're looking forward to a day when there will be no military vocation, there will be Amen. no war because of Christ. And it's not his war. And he's right. it. Yes. It's a necessary evil that right. is just. Right. It's, it's, if anyone loves war for idealistic purposes, isn't there a war going on in heaven? If I may, real quick, let me paint the landscape. Because we're talking about war in this particular conflict, and, and I'm not trying to um, kind of skirt from, from particular. I love where you go. Yeah. Where you're I guess at. what I'm trying to ask is is why war at all? And I used to think, man, when wrestling through that question, I used to think a lot. There, there, there's good, good things come from war. There's good, you know, in the same way that like a, there's some collateral benefits. Um, we've learned technology society improves yeah. technology um, lots of technology it's almost almost like always like a honeymoon after a war happens if you I mean at least in my our perspective in the United States perspective not that that's an important clarification yeah. from our perspective largely because we have not experienced in this country at least since the civil war battles on our own front in terms of massive human casualties I understand there's still conflicts here. Revolution, civil war. Right. But for example, Germany and Russia after World War II, they were not calling that a honeymoon period. It was a it was decades of reconstruction and grief. Yeah. But I understand your point. There, there are goods that come out of war, namely that there's an opportunity for peace. Well back to your original question. Is there war in heaven though? Because because I don't even think that was like me saying the good comes from it. was like me really trying to hard retrofit, trying to make yeah. some kind of justification. And I took a step back and be like, I'm human, I trust the Lord. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than this. It's bigger than our generations. But it's time there's a war. And I personally hold on to the belief that everything that we do on earth is almost a shadow of the eternal reality. You know, it's it's we, we, paint, the, we paint the picture, but we're just painting a sight of a sunset. If there is a sunset out there, and so I'm saying that because holy war, there is, I think, there is a war bigger than humanity. There's a war. And I, I'm, I'm asking, do you guys suspect that we are influenced by that war? Yeah. Are we, yeah. Are, are we the reason why we war humans is because of that bigger I think so. Yeah, yeah but, but I think it's really something you just said, I think, needs me to clarify something I said. I guess I could say I was speaking of war as in the geopolitical type. But our holy war, we do have and believe in holy war. If you mean by holy war, spiritual warfare. And here's the key though it is so counter everything from geopolitical war. So, for instance, 
geopolitical war uses the assets of Earth, what we call providence, providential assets, military, you know, economics, you know, any of those sort of things. I mean, ironically, the Holy War is falling in just the opposite way, where you would expect uh, a desire to seize power and to overturn power in the uh, in the unholy Holy War version, the earthly Holy War. We don't agree with that, right? The spiritual holy war, if you will, is is to not seize power as our means. It's not a war won with the sword. It's not a war that's war with tanks. It's not a war that's war with money. I mean, every every time in the Gospels, Jesus is confronted with this idea of being co-opted into whether it's you know uh, Roman nationalism, whether it's whatever this idea of the earthly, if you will, the what we call it. Every time he says, I did not come to build that kind of thing. I'm not here to build Rome, geopolitical nationalism. I'm here to build a kingdom not of this world, which means you don't use the sword. They bring him the coin of, of you know, they bring him the coin of Rome, and he takes the coin and says, I have no use of this for my war. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God. Over and over again, he. he, he even the mob, if you think of the mob as, or the crowds as being power, and it is, populism. Everywhere, when everyone, when the crowds began to come towards him, he was very hesitant to co-opt populism. Because he was all critical of pneumonia. Yeah. I think of often, you know, be familiar with Paradise Lost. Mm-hmm. Paradise Lost, the war in heaven, and the state of affairs right now, I think that on one hand, and what I was trying to allude to before, what breaks my heart about war and why I'm starting really hard trying to find it. Um, because I think war in a way feels like a civil war, you know, I and mean, it's 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 you can say evil, but there's there's a human doing evil, and then you can start taking a step back and be like, is that human being you know, I don't want to use another word, spiritually influenced to act as a pawn piece in this greater spiritual battle of war. It's that quote about the potential for every human heart yeah. to engage in evil. Yeah. There is a war happening first right? every human heart uh, between good and evil. And, you know, e- even to your point about paradise, lo- paradise lost and the war in heaven, as Christians we believe that the decisive battle in that war happened at the cross. That death was ultimately defeated. Which was what? What did he do? He didn't go and seize Rome with the power. He actually went to the suffering servant. I think the best illustration yes. yes. by his death. He, right. Instead of killing Rome, he killed himself. That's incredible. Yeah. And real quick, I, I've always thought that's... Well, 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 I've Mercy. Mercy. <laughs> we have a kind of policy here. We lose lots. We lose liars. All right. And when you start talking like you lose a lot. I feel like I'm interrupting. Yeah, no, you're not. Because one thing that really... I, I saw at the cross, right? Really, that decisive victory. Um, it was interesting because it kind of did, it, Okay, let me take a step back. I there's a scene in Lord of the Rings, the second movie, the Two Towers, where Gandalf, you think he's about to die, oh, he runs, he falls off the cliff, but really, it does he, he backflips and then he starts? He has a, a sword going down this volcano. Into the depths of this mountain, this volcano, right. slays the dragon, and he becomes Gandalf the White. Yeah. And and I've always, when I saw that, that was like that really affirmed my faith. 
because it was like a very like that's how I, I kind of like imagine as a kid that's what Jesus did when he, he yeah. went to hell and boom and came back so tell me tell me go more of that I'm really curious how you yeah. saw that imagery what did you see as being represented in that scene what was he actually doing when he did that on one hand it looked as if he was he was submitting and dying but it was almost like to like if that was the sword yeah, it was almost to infiltrate the kingdom of hell to, um, we were talking about Trojan horse style, right. uh, 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 just Trojan horse, go in there and, and, and cut the cut the root. But it was his death, it was his sacrificial love that was the, the, the blow, the fatal blow to the kind of evil that we're trying to do. I think there's a sword involved. Oh, but, you, but you think there's an actual geopolitical sword? Yeah. So what do you think? Uh, you mean, I'm like, trying to relate to this. this I, I, what I'm trying to say is, like, I'm curious why right now to go to war at all if, if the victory in a way against evil. Like, if, 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 let me take a step back. It doesn't seem like evil has vanquished on this world. No, it hasn't. And, and so we're, we're kind of like in the waiting room of revelation. Well, he mentioned earlier that now, not yet. Now, I know that's code. But what we well, what we see, I think maybe you want to go through this as well, but. You know, when Christ came onto the earth, you know, he established the kingdom. It says it starts in Matthew, I think chapter five. He came proclaiming the kingdom of God has come. And yet he died, and we still see the reality of evil. We do not yet see the utopian society that he was promised to bring. There's a lot we're still waiting for. And so in the scripture, the last days uh, that the prophets talked about would be days. That, that would be, consist of both the coexistence of, of both the kingdom of God as it is now tasked with, the we call it the church militant, to use this code word of the war. But the militancy of the church is not a geopolitical militancy. It's a militancy that takes up the sword and that beautiful depiction, y'all help me remember this, but, but we talk about spiritual warfare and Paul in Galatians talks about, therefore, take on the breastplate of, what were they, faith or right, whatever it is. But he takes language that is spiritual. And by spiritual, I mean the sphere of Christ. He takes language that is geopolitical warfare, like sword and helmet and breastplate and, if you remember the other ones. And he applies that to spiritual. So the sword in the scriptures constantly talked about as the word of God. We're not, we're not here to coerce you to believe. We're here to proclaim that which is Christ and his kingdom, of which you have free will to believe it or not. You see, it's not going to be under threat of literal death that you're going to believe in Christ. It's being inspired by God's Spirit acting through his word and bringing me to believe in it and love it. It's going to change it. So the bottom line is you're in a story in the Bible where... Jesus comes, he inaugurates the kingdom of God, and now we enter into an era where the kingdom of God is expanding by virtue of us taking up our cross and following after Christ, suffering and loving our enemies, etc., 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 using the word of God, using faith, using you know uh, the community in a way that our weapons. our weapons are real, because we believe there's a real spirituality in the world. And yet, our weapons, it's only the kingdom of God that's going to do what war. Because it's true, what's underneath all war is the curse and evil and sin. So it's not until sin 
which is our real enemy, is eradicated, then we'll never have any hope of having a geopolitical utopia. And that will come when he comes again. So now, because of we're in the waiting game, we're in those provisions, we're in, the, we're in these days where we're, we're still expecting, what do we do now? And we become soldiers. Do we, do we, do we just protect our land? Because we can... Yeah. We can well, no, no, I, I, let me just make it clear that we are in the scripture called to be soldiers. But we're not soldiers like the world's soldiers, not like the geopolitical soldiers. But we're all we're not called to be passive and just put ourselves in a fortress and protect ourselves until he comes back. We're actually aggressive. It's interesting. Now and then I'll just be the last thing I'll tell you, but in Matthew sixteen, he you know, he says to Peter, Who do you say that I am? He says, You are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And he says, God, you did not get that from human means. You got that from God. It didn't come because Rome put a knife at your throat and said, Who is Jesus? You know, you got that from God. And so here's what Jesus said. I'll think, listen to what I said. I know you know that, but we ought to think about it. He says, Therefore, you know, uh, upon this rock, this confession of who I am, I will build my church. And against which the gates of hell will not prevail. Notice the imagery. Who's on the offensive? Who's on the offensive that? The gates of hell. Think about a fortress. Evidently, hell, Satan, is cowering in that fortress. And he's got this great mighty gate trying to keep all us militant Christians out. And these militant Christians now, we're told, the church, he says, the gates of hell will not prevail. It's Satan's fortress. That, that, that that it's me. Satan's that's fortress. And we are the aggressors, and I hate that term now because it's come up with a better one for me because I don't like it. But we are the aggressors precisely by being humble. Not, not, right. our aggression is in the form of a counter-aggression. We love our enemies. We will die for our enemies. We self-sacrifice for our enemies. A willingness to suffer is the ability to see the Christian church is and, and that's the upside downness of it the gospel. Upside downness. That in, in a separate passage in Matthew, Jesus says he's going to Jerusalem, and Peter's like, "No, no, not yet." Yeah, that human, that human kingdom speaking, and Jesus says, "Get behind me, Satan," indicating that the means, and methods that our world employs for warfare, and in Peter's mind, still thinking oh, Jesus is going to be this conquering military hero of the Jewish people in the first century Israel against Rome. That's the wrong way of thinking. That is actually through following Christ and through the suffering servant that the kingdom of God goes forward. Yeah. There was a long time ago when we planted a church where there was a little, a little mini debate that came up in our church. It was probably almost 25 years ago. And we were at time working through some of the hymns, the classical hymns, you know. And one is Onward Christian Soldier. And I basically made a decision never to sing it. Now the reason why was not because that song was wrong. If I trusted in my if I trusted that people hearing that and singing that were really, really, really clear, crystal clear, that we were not singing Christian nationalism or American nationalism, or Christian American nationalism, that, um, that I would have maybe sung it, because it really is apropos, if we really, really qualify, that to 
be this Christian soldier would be to put down the sword, would be to give up my power, would be to not try to seize the power of the world by the powerful, by the worldly powerful means, but to use the means of grace, the means of this kingdom to seize that, to, to defeat evil, which is love, which is humility, which is sacrifice and, 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 and death even. Like, Christ modeled his means of grace. How did he conquer the devil? By going to the cross and dying. How does that to those he's trying to save? So this is important. So so when that when I made that, we had a debate. I said, okay, we're not going to sing this. Because I recognize, honestly, the wording is so clear that when we talk about being a Christian soldier, if that for even a second is co-opted by American nationalism or even American exceptionalism in the sense that that, that idea means that we're somehow messianic in our purpose in the world to, to, to expand America. See, I don't think that's, that's the purpose of Just Wars, not to expand America, not to expand democracy, not to expand a lot of those things. It's literally just wars to say we have the right, the state has a just cause to protect its citizens against oppression and promote peace. And to promote peace, which we think is the superior firepower. Well, presumably God gave the state that power in order to bring that bring peace where there was no peace. The power was meant to restrain its remedial efforts, only remedial, to restrain evil that peace might return. It's never meant to, you don't get you know, I need a peace person. A good way of thinking about that person is uh, God created a good and perfect world. He didn't intend for there to be human sin. Human sin came into the world. Uh, and yet, through God's grace, through common grace, there's the institution of the state. There's the means through which to seek after the creational norm of order, of peace, of justice, even within a fallen world. And so that's how I always viewed my military experience, my, my services of an officer, was there is the need to promote order, to maintain order, in order to restrain evil. And I, I think that's the way, that's an application of just war theory, that um, we don't engage in war with, within a just war mindset in order to propagate our own our own power, our own ability to subjugate others. And not even our own self-interest if it's not in the level that we deserve it. Right. It's dire. It's, it's life-threatening. You know, what, would, what would you say is, we need to clarify things here. Is it right to be a patriot? Is patriotism a good thing? I think, is it being qualified? What do you think? I, I think absolutely patriotism is a good thing. That needs to be qualified because of how easily you can shift into an overly nationalistic, Christian nationalistic view, which I think is borrowing too much from theonomy of the past, into saying our spiritual welfare is directly tied to our nationalistic welfare. Yeah, and and we know that that's not that's not the case. That's not biblical. Um, But you know, patriotism, the idea of Loving one's country is really connected to loving one's people. It's connected to God's creating people. Uh, you know, without without wrongly assigning patriotism to uh, without using the Bible to wrongly justify patriotism, you look at God's love of the land, God's love of the people of Israel, and their connection to the fulfillment of. Uh, his promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12 
that the land of Israel, the people of Israel, was an ideal that they were seeking to achieve all throughout their exile, all throughout their uh, movement into Israel. I think it's right and good to promote proper forms of patriotism. And what would that look like? A, an appropriate love of country that doesn't necessarily see itself as superior to another country. And, which is why, you know, as we were talking about this, Preston, which is why I would want to affirm any other, any other person's patriotism. patriotism. So, Canadian patriotism. Yes. Iranian patriotism. That we would want to. Oh, would want we to. would want to affirm uh, an individual's love of their people in place. So why we affirm our love of people in place. And it really harkens back to this idea of common grace. We think that God, when he, when he instituted the state, it was, a, it was a subset of common grace where God is gracious to all peoples of all faith or none in ways in which they it's remedial in its nature common grace, at least one aspect of it, where they, to restrain evil in order for for the sin not to so go, get out of control that it could be not, we live in a total oppressive world. Now here's, now I'm going to get a little bit more edgy. So, one expression of patriotism is American flag. And we live in a country right now where, you know, it's, that's... The American flag is not going to Well, so the American flag, what does it represent? Um, and why, is it a good thing to, to fly your American flag as an American? Is it a good thing to drape it around your body? All these images that we horribly and tragically saw at the November... Sixth thing, you know, the, I mean, the uh, January sixth, January sixth. Um, what do we think of the flag as a symbol, as a Christian? I think, on the one hand, I'll just venture a, a re- reaction to that. Insofar as I understand the flag to represent that manifestation of common grace, is truly grace that restrains and and is remedial against oppression and against. All those things which you know we do love about our country, insofar as it has expressed God's common grace in the world, um, there is something about home and homeland and people and and all that we share together as a people that we believe is beautiful and good and worth protecting. Uh, uh, but we can't forget that that same flag represents oppression. Doesn't represent liberty. It represents the history of being oppressed. Um, depending on your experience of America, what sector of America you live in, regardless of all the big issue causes, there's some that will view that as oppressive. And how do we deal with that? I mean, we 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 distinguish patriotism from Christian nationalism already. I hope we've got that clear. We established we we distinguish patriotism from American exceptionalism, if you mean by that, that, that God's common grace is only manifest through America. It's not. We think God's common grace can be manifest through all forms, a lot of forms of government. You know, the, the it's, it's kind of a, I mean, we believe as Calvinists, I'm a Calvinist more or less, I'm not aware, but as a Calvinist, we hold this idea of total depravity. And the fundamental doctrine, you get that right out of Romans 3, by the way. You cannot not hold the total fragments. He basically makes a statement there that there is nothing that's not impacted by sin. My mind, my thoughts, 
my, my rationality, my social strategies, my habits, even my systems. And so, and I'll go on record and as a, as a theologian, not as a politician, not as a political player here, but as a theologian, I can't help but not believe in systemic evil at all, all levels. I don't know races or whatever. But, but on the other hand, I can't, I can't go so far as to then say that de facto necessarily that means that that everything is evil about America. Right. That, that there is definitely an evil systemic expression of sin that's come through the history of America. But there's also an expression of God's common grace and yes. good things that have come through the expression of America. And I would say that's true for every country on earth. So that's we're not exceptionalists. We're not Christian nationalists. So what now is patriotism? It's it's that aspect of pride and, and love and joy where God has protected me, where God has has provided for me, where God has in my people. And the in the continued existence of a I think you keep talking about land. Land is important. I do love the land that we call America. It's a beautiful place. And it's so how do we do express patriotism without expressing Christian nationalism, exceptionalism, or this this naive idea from a theological view that there is not real systemic racism or systemic evil? Yeah. How do we? You guys got any thoughts on that? Yeah. I, I first want to say, um, you know, I think it's important to maintain uh, an understanding of the degree to which systemic issues in our country exist relative to other people groups and countries around the world. And that's not to paint America in some type of positive life versus anyone else, but to say that I think uh, true patriotism recognizes the imperfections and, in many cases, the egregious sins that exist within American history. But I think one thing we've lost in our current moment is the ability to engage in nuance and say, can we love can we love America and be patriotic while recognizing that there are a lot of folks that don't see it that way? Yeah, and um, we need to have compassion for that. And it's compassion. It's also recognition, a true recognition of history. I think um, you know we're about to celebrate Thanksgiving. Uh, for better or for worse, even even if the motives of our first European forefathers that moved to this country were pure the second, third order effects of European migration to the United States was the displacement of Native peoples. Well, even in the Puritan, early Puritanism, where there was a false theonomic sort of ideal about America, that we were to expand the kingdom of God by this, uh, what's the word, I don't want to say oppressing, but by enslaving Bringing people under bondage, they might be forced into this kingdom of God here in gospel, which is the holy word. That would be the, the holy word that we don't think is holy. Yeah. If, if I may, if it was just a paint that does, maybe, maybe, maybe yeah. we ought to wrap this up. And I was yeah. trying to see if I'm hearing correctly. Because, real quick, patriotism to me essentially, I don't know if this is wrong or ethical, but it, I think it, it really boils down to saying, hey, this is my house. Here's this invader coming to my house. I'm going to defend it. In my house, I might have some marital disputes. I might have some problems with my kids. I might have a problem with my neighbor. 
But if there's somebody coming to my house, it's just it's, so that's 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 how I can justify protect wanting to yearn to protect the America's sake of the sanity of we can go outside that. And to put your thing, you would hope that the house next to you would do the same thing against you if you were their oppressor. In other words, every house should feel that way. Yeah, and, and it's every so we have a house. We have problems in our house. Um, but we still are sane enough to, at least now, to, to say we're going to defend this house. And not let this house just be steamrolled by whoever wants to party in it. I'm not trying to say that's either immigration or that's some kind of imperialist stand. It's just more pure than that. It's it's that, that feeling they all have this is our home. Um, but I would say part of the problem, I, I like what you're saying, but here's maybe a There's nuance. problems to it because well, here, here's you know, the home is our earth. So let's say now, let's, let's remember that if there is some systemic sin, that's biblical. Um, the person who is attacking your house may be doing an evil to attack you that needs your protection, but also has been under the oppressive influences of sin in the world in a manner that, at least not fully, we all are individuals and have individual power. You can't diminish like the But the reality is, those, you know, there's a sense in which the very person who is doing evil is perhaps a person that's at least been influenced by the fact that evil has been done upon them. Uh, whether it's systemic evil, whether it's individual evil. I mean, it's interesting, even in an individual way, to, to, it's a very common thing that for those who have, say, an abusive relationship with their parents, to be abusive. And while we can't, we can't then legitimate the abuse, I don't care at what stage it comes down, we do need to protect ourselves from abuse and our family or our people. We, I think they just soft it, but the sad thing has been, I, I really believe this, and this is where the church, I think, has not been clear enough. We have as much responsibility to the abuser and to, to consider the circumstances that they were abused of their abuse and have we been active enough to protect the abused from the abuse that leads to abuse see it's a circular thing and I think we need to have a lot more I love that you said nuance we've got to be a lot more nuanced and, uh, and where is the and I think the church has been you know has a pretty good track record but in some ways but not in others but where are we in protecting those who are under the oppression of systemic poverty or systemic uh, uh, power abuse uh, situations. I mean, this issue of police, you know, um, we got to talk about that. You know, that, that there's a place for us inside the house. We're inside the house. I, know, I think if we're, we're talking about uh, just the fact that we, we yearn to protect the house at all. Well, you said the military is good at that. I mean, as a person in the military, you see a lot of people in the military, I'm sure, they're driven out of that beautiful, I think, noble dream to to uh, to be remedial against sin, to, to, to go out there and to stop the progress of oppressive sin. All sin is oppressive. You that. And yet, you already admitted that in the military, you see that that, that, that 
It doesn't mean that everything about the military is good. Everything about the people who don't live in the military is not. Flush that out. How would you say you? How did you? You're speaking not just for military, but you're speaking in some ways for the police force. You've got the reality that there's to be quotes of bad apples. And there's a systemic issue that might even be related to bad apples. Yes. How would you interact that with military? What would be your nuanced way of defining military that way? What you've seen? Yeah. I, I think, you know, you mentioned known purpose, and I think there are, the, the vast majority of American kids sign up to join the military uh, want to be a part of something. That's good. We'll be a part of the force for good. But each human heart is affected by the propensity for good and evil. And, you know, I guess we need to think about this more. Um, you see people in the military that, you know, you would question motives, you question. Uh, you know, we talked about trust war not necessarily being used to solely protect national interests. Yeah. Um, when you're spending human capital, when you're spending your, your own flesh and blood, uh, as a nation, I think, operationally, strategically, there's an unwillingness to spend that on things that are not in the, in the national interest. And I don't necessarily think national interest is wrong. It's the reason for that national interest. Yeah. What that we all see it. Nationalism is not wrong insofar as right. it is mediating common grace and needs to be protected. It's wrong and it's oppressive. Right. And, you know, there, there are situations in the world geopolitically that we don't get involved with. I'm an American nationalist. I'm not about that. And so, you know, for example, there's a, there's a long-standing civil war going on in Myanmar, Burma. Uh, it's not in our national interest to get involved in there militarily. I'm sure our diplomatic branch or State Department is working towards resolution, peaceful ends, but that conflict's been going on for decades. So, you know, there's oppression that's happening in the world. There's people being oppressed that we don't engage, that, you know, whereas we potentially could. So I think that, you know, there's this conversation of national national interests and using the military to promote our national interests. There are limitations to the use of, of a military force. We don't do everything we could. Um, and I don't necessarily know if that's right or wrong, because uh, it would be it would be nationalist or nationalistic or uh, arrogant, really, to think that America can solve all of the world's problems. That would be the bad use of American exceptionalism. Right. To the degree that America has any influence from a good and noble dream that hopefully derives from God from the yeah. state, there's something good about nationalism. Yeah. But insofar yeah. as there is influence in other factors that are not yeah. just war-related, it's a bad thing. You're saying it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag because it's it's a sinful war. Yep, exactly. Um, and, you know, if I could bring the conversation back quickly to the conversation about the flag. Yeah. Um, speaking from my perspective and maybe representing a view of particular most veterans, it's hard to separate this conversation from how politicized it's become. Yes. But the flag doesn't necessarily represent nationalism as much as it represents 
sacrifice of, of fallen the patriots, fallen Marines and soldiers. Uh, throughout the generation, some families have been in military service you know, since the revolution. And it's hard to see the flag disrespected because of that heritage. That is so important that you said this. And, and I think we can still understand that that's not the same experience for every American. And yet, I think you could find many immigrant groups, many people who have benefited from immigrating to the United States, who have a similar perspective on the flag. They were enabled, you know, they were opportunities for education and freedom were available to them once they immigrated here. Symbol of hope. Can we hold that symbol of hope yeah. while also holding that their is hope so to have experience? What you that. said, I think. So we're not here in our critique of uh, American exceptionalism or Christian nationalism. In Christian nationalism, you're attaching a threat of spiritual kingdom to a national geopolitical warfare, and I don't want that. But I do think that's really important. You said that. While we need to be more nuanced about the flag and open to talk about what we have, I think you're right. When you have sacrificed for the common grace that is represented in our land and people, which it is there, and someone has died for it, someone has sacrificed for families and sacrificed loved ones and all sorts of inconveniences to send their sons and daughters and husbands wives, whatever to work. It's not a right thing to burn a flag. Insofar as we are also being disrespectful to those who served it for a noble ends. Again, no ends not of American socialism or just stark nationalism, but for the sake of the common grace that America might represent and does represent many. It's a nuance. And how can we do that in our society? I do think part of the problem is we don't talk to each other. We don't have. Yeah. We don't really talk. It's become so litmus test to talk about these things that you're not in my my national tribe, my my political tribe, and that's become it's somewhat theonomistic in spirit, both left and right, that we've equated my political tribe with my religious. Uh, tribe, if you will, being a Christian. Right. And it's sad because I think if we were able to really invite others into this room who see the flag differently, but we've developed a relationship, exactly. we might have a couple of drinks, yes. and I think we can start hearing each other and saying, okay, I'll give you that I don't need to flaunt the American flag on your, in your face as if unaware and, and, and totally naive the fact that this history to your people represents something different than my people. Yeah. And yet the other person can come back and say, but you know, I don't want to flaunt, I don't want to be burning it in your face either. Especially as it's happened in funerals and things like that where we just kind of love each other. And this is where Christians ought to stand above the tribalism. Oh, here. You're going to give me on my soapbox question, but... Unfortunately, we're at the end, but yeah, go ahead. I'll, 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 I'll just say this. You know, after January 6th, it really, it really uh, highlighted uh, how groups within our society have just been pushed to either ends of radical truth. so sad. And um, a guy that I like reading has personal connection to uh, CPC New Haven, Senator Ben Sachs wrote a phenomenal article talking about how 
community, relationship, talking to one another, actually knowing someone who thinks differently than you enables a level of commonality that is, we're just not seeing in, in, in our moment right now. Because we we're, we gravitate, and I'm not speaking in the royal we of, of uh, we as a society, we're gravitating towards our particular group of like-mindedness politically. And this is where the church of Christ, you know, if there's ever an apologetic for the church of Christ, it's that true community, true togetherness, the supernatural, spiritual ability to speak with one another because of Christ. Uh, not only do I think that's incredibly attractive in a, in a disenfranchised and disconnected world, but it's ultimately, it, it, it's just the beauty and the power of the gospel. When you talk to each other, someone that thinks differently. Did you? I want to ask you one last thing. I'm dying. Yeah. I'm sorry, I know we're going over. I just, just really want to know. When you were out there, yeah. you, know, you said you were a Christian before. Yes. And now you're about to enter role as a pastor. Mm-hmm. When you're out there, I'm sure you've had deep conversations, late night chats. Did you have any experiences that enhanced your faith or challenged it or uh, any conversations? Let him have the last word. Let him have the last word. conversations you remember? Because I'm sure when you're out there, you really have dive deep into life or death stuff. You know, there's the old maxim that came out of World War II there's no atheists in foxholes. And, you know, you see that to more or less degrees in our in our current climate. Um, because the military ultimately is a reflection of society. So the questions that people are bringing are, are largely the questions of wider society, even in the military. Um, but, yes, when you're confronted with existential realities like life and death, you know, the big threat of the last 20 years was one of them was... IEDs, improvised explosive devices. You don't know when you're going to step on one. We have all types of means of trying to uh, identify them and mitigate them, but um, there's an unknown element. It's, 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 it's hidden depth. And so, yes, that brings to the forefront a lot of questions of um, why am I here? What, what's the purpose of what we're doing? What, what is uh, what does God think about all of this? So, yeah, I had a lot of really amazing conversations. I, I would say my faith was strengthened insofar as I uh, learned to truly lean on the sovereignty and providence of God that I belong to Him. The, the beauty of the Gospel is that we don't belong to ourselves. We belong body and soul to Jesus in sickness and health and life and death. And that, that's a grounding reality that doesn't exist outside of faith in God. I think that should be the last word. You bring, That's the kind of stuff that you can go into voting. Cheers, <laughs> brother. That was awesome. That was so awesome, man. Good thanks. That was great. All right. So, I mean, we opened up about a thousand can of worms. So I, I we might need to have, have part two. I feel like we can keep talking. Yeah. I, go, well, I, just, I know we gotta go. Yeah, we, we gotta did, go. I, I, I identified like three or four sub podcasts coming out of this. Discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have other days. We'll have other days. And yeah. if you guys wanted, if you guys care about those other days. You can okay. Can I do my thing? If you like the show, you could subscribe to us on YouTube. You can follow us on Instagram. We have a website, smokingtheologians.com. You can write to us at holler at smokingtheologians.com where you can drop a YouTube comment. We read both. And honestly, guys, again, if you really like the show, the best thing to do is spread it with your friends. 
subscribe to on YouTube because the robot overlords really care about our subscription. And um, and yeah, just just keep keep. We're really mad. I hope, I hope these guys will give us some questions. I, I, I'm even shouting out the robot. Even if they're antagonistic, bring it on. That's what this place is about. Yeah, it's having on. real. We're in the heart of New Haven. We're in the owl shop, by the way. For those out around us, want to come in and watch us live, heckle off screen. Uh, it's 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 encouraged and welcome. Yeah. 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 for being here. Yeah. 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 Thank you, man. Join us. Been great. Okay. Are you are you are you sick of people saying thank you for your service? Is there is there a better way? Is there a better way I can say? That is. No, thank you. I think what it said, honor, you know, it said with, with true intent. That's uh, a great thing. I've been seeing commercials lately. I just rubbed me the wrong way. Well, thank you. You just listened to Smokin' Theologians. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe. Consider a five-star rating and share it with your friends. If you have any questions that you'd like answered on the show, write to us at holler at smokintheologians.com. No G in smoking.